Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Our guest today is Martina Spada, the highly acclaimed award-winning poet and voice of the voiceless. Martine lived in Madison from 1977 to 82, and during that time was, among other things, intimately involved in the early life of WRT. And when the station was housed in a small Winnebago Street space close by Shanks Corners, he at one point rented a room there. He lived at the studio where, uh, in a small spare room for, get this, based upon today's rental prices, $100 a month. Right? The October edition of Madison Magazine featured Martin's poetic memoir of his time spent in our city, a poem entitled Better Than Stealing a Necklace of Bullets, which we'll get to. It had an introduction by local journalist Doug Moe. So I thought it only fitting that I have my old friend and occasional program guest join us today. Martin, of course, welcome back to uh, WRT. Thank you, Alan. Great to be here. Well, Martina, as Doug Moe's Madison Magazine piece recounted, you stated that your years in the city were really pivotal, a pivotal time in your life. What made that so? I was an empty vessel when I came to Madison. Uh, it's not that I didn't have some experience with the world. Um, I did grow up in an activist household. Uh, my father, Frank Espada, was a community organizer and the documentary photographer, uh, a leader, some would say the leader of the Puerto Rican community in New York City in the 60s. But in so many ways, I was an empty vessel. I, I was a blank slate. Um, I was also confused. Um, I uh, migrated, uh, to use that word, uh, 900 miles to Wisconsin without knowing where Wisconsin is. I thought Wisconsin is where Oregon is. I came to Madison for the ocean. And I came totally unprepared. I didn't have a coat. I didn't have boots. Um, and so it took a while to, uh, so to speak, find my feet. Um, but I got quite the education in medicine. I got an education at the university and I got an education in the streets. And uh, that really is the subject of the poem that appeared in Madison Magazine. So Martin, talk about the Ma that Madison you encountered, the social and political environment of the late 70s that's still, still influenced by the ferment of the previous decade. Uh, I know when I came here in 1974, a bit before you, I was wowed by the the resiliency, the the energy, the political culture that was still very vibrant and, and visible at the time. Absolutely, a part of my education was engaging with that uh, political culture, that counterculture. Um, keep in mind, of course, uh, that the war was very recent history. Relatively speaking, the war in Vietnam had just ended. Um, and so there were still signs of it. 
politically and and even physically in medicine. Um, but there was this very strong counterculture. I had never seen the likes of it before. Um, I remember the Green Lantern. Uh, I remember the Yellow Jersey. Uh, I remember Gilman Street books. That was a lifeline for me. I would wander in there and spend hours in there, even though I was, uh, you know, financially uh, marginal, shall we say. Um, and that was no problem. I was uh, basically treated it as a library. And I read and I read and I read. And it deeply influenced me. Once in a while, I would find a book that would change everything. And uh, Pedro Pietri's Puerto Rican obituary, for example, uh, is where I, I and, and I think the people there, was Ruth Greenspan, was so generous. Um, and, and many doors like that opened for me when I was in, uh, in Madison as an early arrival, you know, uh, I loved going to the Green Lantern. I loved seeing the movies there. Uh, for that matter, I got a, I got a cinematic education, uh, due to the various film societies scattered everywhere, uh, on campus and off campus, you could see a different movie every night for, you know, 50 cents a dollar. And I took advantage of that. Uh, so that that's, you know, when I say education, maybe the better word is immersion. Um, I found myself experiencing uh, that brave new world you hear about. You're listening to Poet Great in My Estimation and in the Estimation of Many Others, Martin Espada. We're talking about today, talking about his Madison years. Talk, Martin, about... Uh, some of the people who influ influenced you directly, that paved the way or opened pathways for you, uh, your Madison mentors, as it were. I can think of uh, a number of people, but I want to make sure to cite uh, several in particular. Um, in the poem, as you will hear later, uh, I make direct reference to a professor of mine uh, by the name of Herbert Hill, um, and he was a professor of Afro-American studies. He was a former national labor director of the NAACP and uh, a great lecturer, great storyteller, a raconteur, in fact, who took me under his wing, especially when he realized that I was broke. He started feeding me. Uh, he would take me to lunch and, and he would give me whatever he had in his wallet. And this was even when I was not a student of his, even when I was a dropout, because uh, I sort of dropped in and out of school. I used to tell people I was a seventh semester sophomore. Um, but uh, Herbert Hill was uh, a mentor in every sense of that word. He was also very influential when I finally made the decision upon graduation with a BA in history, not by coincidence, to go to law school. And that's where I ended up, uh, Northeastern University Law School in Boston. Uh, so he was extremely important as a mentor. Another great mentor of mine was a professor in the history department by the name of Steve Stern. And Steve was a young professor, only uh, a few years older than me at the time, and uh, provided uh, an education on Latin America and U.S. imperialism in Latin America and made connections for me that I had never before contemplated. Uh, also became a great mentor and took me under his wing, uh, introduced me to many people, 
in uh, in the, the the Latin American community in, in Madison, um, and and is and is still a friend. Is is still out there uh, and and cheering me on. Uh, those are professors. Of course, you would expect some mentorship coming or hope for some mentorship coming from there. But there were also mentors in the community, uh, and I, you know, I would be remiss if I did not mention uh, David Velasquez, who was uh, not only a great friend of mine but a great friend of yours, Alan. Uh, David uh, was uh, a community organizer, but also a natural teacher. I would say one of the most gifted natural teachers I ever encountered. He had the ability to articulate uh, these great ideas, make the abstract concrete. He had a grasp of history. Uh, he had had extraordinary life experiences as, a, as an organizer. Um, and, and, and he was a roommate. I ended up living with David. Um, on uh, Curtis Court, uh, you know, we, we the, little there. That, the little alleyway or passageway behind the Avenue bar. It was right, right behind the Avenue bar. And, you know, it was considered the, the, the height of culinary experience me to, to go from my, my hovel at Curtis Court right across the way to the Avenue bar and pick up a cheeseburger. You've already referenced a number of community institutions. A good part of your Madison tenure centered around WRT, as we've already uh, referenced, alluded to. How did you happen to come to the station? What was that about? You know, uh, shrouded in mystery, as they say. I can remember uh, several people who introduced me to the station. One was David who was participating in a program called Third World View on Sunday afternoons. I eventually took over that program. Uh, Tom Sinks was another one who was uh, working on that program. They were looking for somebody to take over, and and they basically trained me, between David and Tom, to, uh, to do that. Um, but I can remember a fellow by the name of David Anthony. Um, I can remember another fellow by the name of Jim Stevens, I spent a lot of time with Jim Stevens, who was a poet and a jazz programmer, um, and uh, introduced me both to the community of poets in Madison and also through jazz. I knew nothing about jazz before I mentioned Stevens. Uh, and so they were, uh, that was my entree into uh, the station. And uh, again, because they were looking for somebody to take over that program, it was very easy for me to step in and say, okay, I'll do it. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, but I did that program for, for, a, for quite a while. Of course, the discussion of your time at work brings us to your poem that appeared in this month's Madison Magazine, Better Than Stealing a Necklace of Bullets. Let's get to that. How did the piece come about? Set the stage for our listeners, if you will. Well, I'm now 66 years old, and that has me in a reflective state of mind. I am combing my past. 
I am looking for those places, those turning points in my life that made me who I was and am. So I realized I had not written very much of anything about Madison uh, in the form of poetry. I went back and started thinking about that and, of course, gravitated naturally to uh, my time at WORT. When I refer to my time at WORT, I'm not just talking about being on the air. I'm talking about, as you uh, referenced earlier, living inside the station. And I'm not sure anybody else ever did that. Really? You there, was, there was some signs of life when I occupied the apartment. You're kind of legendary in that sense. Uh, I, I, I've heard people who don't even know you talk about this guy who once lived at the station who, while you were on the air, would parade through in a bathrobe with a toothbrush in his mouth. Yeah, I I would I did do things like that. I, I was, uh, for one thing, I was an insomniac. And and uh, I, I wandered through the station. And, and what I was doing, this is not actually in the poem, what I was doing was listening to music. Um, I happen to have at my fingertips the largest collection of records in the city of Madison. Nobody had access to more records than I did. And so I would wander around at night and I would go into a, a quiet space and I would put on headphones and I would listen to music from every conceivable genre. And that is how I got a musical education, by listening to music at WRT at all hours of the day or night. Now, that also made me available, shall we say, if somebody wanted to take a break, somebody didn't want to do a shift, I was there. And I just took over. And I did everything you can imagine. And, uh, you know, uh, I can remember, uh, he doesn't appear in the poem, but I can remember working with a programmer by the name of Jim Haas, uh, with two A's there. Jim Haas was uh, truly an authority on Latin American music. He really was. But he knew about other forms of music too. And I can remember doing all-night uh, shifts with him. Uh, that was a blast. Uh, you know, there were so many things that I, I learned um, sitting uh, in that studio and sending uh, music or uh, news or public affairs out of the world. Uh, but, you know, uh, let me not tell you the poem. Let me read the poem instead. This is called Better Than Stealing a Necklace of Bullets, Madison, Wisconsin, 1978-79. We were living together for a week, and my girlfriend said, I'm tired of living with you. My comrade dog said I could stay at his commune, so I slung the duffel on my shoulder and landed on the fold-out couch with the bar crucifying my body, bony as a pickerel. I ate more garbanzos than anyone else. One night, I ate half a tray of marijuana brownies, not realizing why they were so crunchy. I reeled into a room of books and read the name on every spine of every book in the room. Dog told me my nickname at the commune was... Don't mind if I do. Warned me they were afraid I would tear the refrigerator door off the hinges at midnight. After two weeks, they voted me out of the house and into the snow. I called my father, 900 miles away. Send money, I said. You send money, he said. 
my history professor fed me lunch once a week, even though I was a dropout. He would tell the waiter, bring us both a bowl of sizzling rice soup, and then I will give you the rest of our order. He always loaned me the bills in his wallet. My car coughed like a man who used one cigarette to light another. Tailpipe snapped off and sleeping in the back seat. We sputtered to the radio station. I read the news in a pledge-drive baritone, learned to splice reel-to-reel tape and red pencil the UPI feed five minutes before airtime. The engineer told me about the empty apartment between the newsroom and the transmitter for $100 a month. My salary at the station was zero dollars and zero cents. The landlady said the first month was free if I cleaned up the apartment. A bag dripped gold under the kitchen sink, potatoes so rotten they liquefied. The fumes made my belly spin as I scrubbed the revenge of a million French fries. Like an archaeologist standing in the ruins, I traced with a finger the head-shaped hole in the wall, tiptoed around the motorcycle headlighted shards of the carpet. I stuffed the towel into the hole. I swept away the last debris of the biker brawl. I scavenged a microwave that did not electrocute me when I plugged it in and stacked up cans of chili from the store in the corner. I plunged the toilet with the curses of Ahab in my throat. They called me the phantom of W.O.R.T. back porch radio, drifting into the station at midnight in my bathrobe, dropping the needle on records at 3 a.m. when the all-night jazz DJ had to call his girlfriend to study the smoke curling from the joint in his hand. My comrade dog would deliver free egg rolls from Tony's Shop Suey. I was awake at dawn to hear Los Madrugadores, the early risers, play Mexican music for the farm workers. My coughing car strangled one day, rolling dead through a red light where I could be speared from everywhere. The tow truck dumped my car on the fire lane next to the station. Spiderwebs spread across the steering wheel. Dandelions grew from a crack in the engine block. The fire marshal knocked at my door one day to threaten me with a fine if I didn't move my car. Go ahead and find me, I said. I can't pay it. And there are dandelions growing from a crack in the engine block. I was loitering on the couch in the station when the chairman of the party arrived with his bodyguards. After Mao died, a delegation from the party told my history professor, We've broken with Beijing. He said, does Beijing know this? The chairman of the party wore his floppy cap at an angle. He wore a leather jacket. He wore a necklace of bullets. I craved a can of chili in my kitchen. A brown paste of beef and bean called to me. The bodyguards of the chairman blocked the doorway and folded their arms wordlessly. Instead of scraping out a can of chili... I sat in the studio with the chairman and the host of the classical show, who loved Mozart and hated me since we once dated the same woman. I could romance her in Spanish. Whenever the classical music host would ask a question, there was a crash as if the chairman of the party brought his own symbols to the interview. My head clanged in my headphones. The host who loved Mozart said to the chairman of the party, Sir... Your necklace of bullets keeps swinging into the microphone. Could you please remove it? The chairman of the party laid his necklace of bullets on the table next to me. I thought about snatching the necklace of bullets and dashing out the door to pawn it for a month's rent. 
I remembered the bodyguards glowering in the doorway. The next day, there was a knock on the door. The fire marshal must be back. At the door stood a diminutive man who collected cars. I confessed everything. The spider webs spreading across the steering wheel, the dandelions growing from the engine block, the exhaust pipe snapped off and twisted up like a rusty Dutch pretzel on the back seat, the kind I would microwave frozen and devour by the box. I don't care. All I want is the body, he said. That's a 1968 Camaro. I'll give you $200 for it, and I'll tow it away. The diminutive man who collected cars towed away my car and left me $200 bills. Two months' rent. Better than sizzling rice soup. Better than a can of chili. Better than the egg rolls of Tony's chop suey. Better than stealing a necklace of bullets. <clears throat> Martinez Spada, thank you ever so much for better than stealing a necklace of bullets, which appeared in this month's Madison Magazine, along with an intro to Martine, an interview he did uh, by conducted by Doug Moe, Madison journalist. Thank you, Martine. I'm wondering what we, could, we, we, we should, as we got oh, less than a half an hour left in the program, what you would like to discuss. There's so many things going on in the country, in the world. Uh, and of course, uh, you've, you've done commentaries. I, in the intro, I talked, spoke of you as a voice for the voiceless. Talk about that a little bit, what propels you. Uh, there's a compulsion that uh, has uh, deep roots. Um, and it goes back, as I mentioned earlier, to my upbringing, uh, to uh, being raised in an activist household, being surrounded by an ethos of resistance. Um, I saw very early on the marriage of art and activism because my father was not only a community organizer, but he was a documentary photographer. And uh, he documented the Puerto Rican community. He created something he called the Puerto Rican Diaspora Documentary Project, photo documentary of the Puerto Rican migration. And that resulted in uh, almost 50 uh, shows that he did all over the country, even back to Puerto Rico. That resulted in a book by the very same name. Um, and... I got that idea from the get-go, that if you, you have an art, whatever that art may be, you can uh, marry that art to uh, a concept of advocacy, a concept of justice, a concept of community. Um, again, thinking in the reflective vein that I have recently occupied myself with, I think it's very important for me to pay homage to people like my father, to the activists who either preceded me and educated me, or who collaborated with me in one movement or another. And it's not a coincidence that the other poem I have in a local Madison magazine as we speak 
is just such a poem. In the Progressive magazine, I have a poem called The Puerto Rican with the Bolshevik Name. And it's dedicated to a friend of mine named Vladimir Morales, uh, who actually passed away in 2022. He was a Puerto Rican activist in Amherst, Massachusetts, uh, where I spent many years. Of course, I'm a professor at UMass Amherst, have been for a long time, 30 years now. Uh, and I, I believe fervently that we have to pay homage to such people. And so that's what I'm trying to do there. Take us to the poem. What is it? Set it up and go ahead. Okay. So, as I said, this is the poem that appears in the current issue of the Progressive Magazine, and uh, which is still going strong. And um, I have uh, my own history with the Progressive, which actually began after I left Madison. I was in Madison from 1987 to... Uh, I'm sorry, 1977 1982. Um, I was aware of the progressive. They were aware of me. But it wasn't until 1995 when Matt Rothschild decided he wanted to start publishing poetry in the progressive. And he came to me and Matt did two things that uh, I am forever be grateful for. One was he said, I would like to publish you uh, in the magazine, and we went ahead and did, I gave him a poem, uh, Sleeping on the Bus, it was called, about my father, who was arrested in Mississippi for not going to the back of the bus when he was in the Air Force. So that was the first thing that Matt did, but an even more important thing that Matt did was to say, hey, why don't you tell me who the poets are these days? I'm going to reach out to them. And I gave that long list of poets that I thought were very important. Um, and many of them were activist poets uh, associated with Curbstone Press um, in Willamette, Connecticut. Matt did it. He went out, he reached out to everybody. A lot of those people ended up at the pages of the Progressive Magazine, which still publishes poetry. And now uh, this poem appears in its pages um, with uh, thanks to Jules Gibbs and Norm Stockwell, so, um, as I said, I spent many years in Madison, but I spent many more years in Amherst. And that, in its way, was also formative. Uh, and I got involved, but at the same time I was getting involved, quote-unquote, I was also becoming more and more uh, recognized as a poet which increasingly took me away from Amherst and away from the community and away from local activism. And that's kind of a strange compromise, isn't it? It's a strange contradiction. People wanted to hear me speak all over the country and for a while there all over the world, no longer true, that took me away. It took me away from the issues Locally, it took me away from the community locally, but there were people who reminded me that there were uh, there were things that mattered back home. One of them was a fellow named Vladimir Morales, who did his best work on the school committee uh, for uh, the town of Amherst. He was also involved in town meeting, did all kinds of things, 
And so this is the story. Now, the backdrop politically, you're going to hear it's a political poem, uh, has something to do with the Puerto Rican flag and Puerto Rican independence. Um, but it's also very personal, this poem, intimate even. The Puerto Rican with the Bolshevik name, or Vladimir Morales, 1951-2022, he shook my hand and said, vote for me. I knew him only from the lawn signs everywhere. The Puerto Rican with the Bolshevik name running for school committee. The last time, I didn't vote for him. I was too busy bellowing my poems in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, the land of cigarettes. Or somebody said, are you a communist? This time, I voted for him. One day he shook my hand and said, help me raise the Puerto Rican flag on the town common. I didn't help him raise the flag. I was too busy bellowing my poems in Newcastle, England, the land of coals, when a white-haired gentleman raised his hand and said, I'm sorry, sir, but where is Puerto Rico? Montgomery Riley knew. Harding's men. The island governor called King Monty, who never had to shake hands with a Puerto Rican and say, vote for me, said, as long as old glory waves over the United States, it will wave over Puerto Rico. The only flag to raise is the flag confiscated by King Monty's chief of police. The only flag is the flag of rebels caged like mice for experiments in electricity. In another century, another country, we raise the flag on the town common. Sometimes we struggle with the clatter of dead leaves wrestling with the flags that flapped up and down the pole, the editor of the neighborhood Puerto Rican paper aiming his camera at us to blur the poet and the politician. Once the rains came, and I gave directions from the black wing of an umbrella as the Puerto Rican with the Bolshevik name Hoist the flag like a kite into the raindrops. Looks great, I said. We scurry it off a breakfast burritos. The raising of the flag, the flurry of petitions, the tally of votes at town meeting, the rallies on the common, the resolution against the Navy war games cratering the coral reef in Vieques, all dissolved away. The day the Puerto Rican with the Bolshevik name slid behind the wheel and drove me to the emergency room, my hands gripping my belly, the morphine IV and the surgeon's knife waiting for me, as Vladimir waited for me, in the room with the TV stuck on Fox News and the snack machine guzzling quarters. Now, too late, I signed my name to his petition. I am not too busy. Anymore. Martinez Spada reading from his work, The Puerto Rican with the Bolshevik Name for Vladimir Morales, 1951 to 2022. Once again, Martin, thank you ever so much. Yeah, we have a good deal of time left. So all right. I want to open it up a little bit to a, maybe a broader discussion. That is, if Someone like myself is going to, if someone asks, 
Martin, what are the fundamental issues of, of our period uh, as you see them? What would, what would your response be? Oh, okay. Could you, I, my first response would be, could you define your terms? <laughs> oh, you're in, oh, you're in a, <laughs> you've been around the academy. <laughs> I mean, it's a very yeah. broad question. So yes, of course. What, what I'm asking for is, you know, narrow it down, I guess. Well, yeah, there's certain basic issues, not even issues, but ideas uh, about how this, what we live in operates who gets what, uh, and so on, uh, race and class, uh, you know, myriad issues, myriad concerns. I'm wondering what draws your attention these days. Okay. Well, um, it's, there's so much, uh, but again, in the, in the spirit of reflection, thinking about, uh, how to sum up a life and what it all means in the present. I have, and you have, seen uh, many movements come and go, many crises come and go. And we have to ask ourselves, what do they have in common? What can we learn? How can we move forward? You know, I am struck, for example, by the fact that a few years ago, due to the murder of George Floyd, all of our attentions were suddenly focused on police brutality and homicides committed by police, especially against people of color, especially against the African-American community. And there were untold and uncounted numbers that poured into the streets. Uh, there was ferment. The language itself changed because of this movement. And now, let's flash forward to the present day. Where is our movement against police brutality today? Where is our consciousness around the continuing police oppression of communities of color. We were so sensitive to that just the other day. Where is it? I think about this because, uh, and you and I discussed this, there was a, a homicide recently in Philadelphia that really grabbed my attention. You're asking what gets my attention these days. So this happened, uh, you know, uh, a few weeks ago, maybe, uh, maybe a little bit further back on the calendar than that. There was uh, a young man, Puerto Rican, by the name of Eddie Irizarry in Philadelphia, who was a mechanic, worked on cars with his father, who was also an auto mechanic. Eddie spoke virtually no English. Eddie had some mental health problems. Um, that's the background. 
Eddie was driving his car uh, erratically, according to the Philadelphia police, and they followed him. He made a wrong turn, and then he parked his car, parallel parked it, very carefully, at which point these two squad cars pulled up next to Eddie's car. They got out. Officer Mark Dial had his gun drawn. His partner yelled something. And Mark Dial fired six shots. All this happened less than 10 seconds from the time they pulled over next to Eddie's car. Five shots went through the windshield, went through the, uh, uh, the driver's side window which Eddie had rolled up. The final shot went through the windshield. Six shots fired as they were both screaming at him to show his hands, screaming at him to drop the knife because he had one of the knives he used for his work stripping uh, engines clutched in his hand by his knee. He never got out of the car the windows were rolled up. And Erizadri was dead. But that was only the beginning. Because the cops then decided to construct the cover story. And the cover story was that Eddie Erizadri got out of his car and lunged at them with a knife, leaving them no choice but to kill him. This, of course was not true. That went out as the story of the incident. Uh, they did not release the body cam footage, but Eddie's family canvassed the neighborhood, and they found somebody at one of those doorbell videos, which is now a common security feature, apparently. And the doorbell video showed very clearly what had happened. Showerboard dialed firing six shots at a man who never got out of his car, never threatened them, and was dead. So, what happened next is what you might expect. Um, Officer Dial was fired, not because he killed Eddie Irizarri, but because he didn't cooperate with the internal investigation. Chief of police resigned. Murder charges brought against this officer and immediately dismissed by a local judge. I wrote a poem about that. And I wrote a poem about that because I think one of my, the roles I play as a poet is to uh, to step in uh, and and try to rescue the dead from oblivion. Because I see this case going away and fading. The the media is not even covering the case anymore. And of course, there'll be a wrongful death claim brought against the city. And that will sit there for God knows how long. Where's the outrage around that case? 
where is it? Where is the national outrage around that case? Blatant, not only a blatant police killing of an innocent man, but then this this extraordinary lie concocted to cover up their crime. Where's the outrage? Where's the movement that we were we were seeing just a few years ago? There's something to me that I find kind of alarming when I see uh, social movements ebb and flow and they evaporate. And look, I realize that social change is not linear. I realize that progress is not linear. It's not a straight line that it, that it uh, you know, goes zigs and zags, goes up and down, goes in figures of eight. I'm well aware of that. But we have to take that awareness and, and turn around and use it to galvanize ourselves so that we build a better society, a society where that kind of thing can't happen. And, and sometimes I allow myself the tiniest bit of despair when I see a great social movement rise and then somehow fall. Because we need that movement right now. The family of Eddie exactly needs our attention politically. And, 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 and this kind of thing is happening every day. It doesn't go away. You know, it, we no longer see it in the news. The same way, there's no way we could possibly keep track of, of all the mass shootings that are happening in this country. They don't even, you know, when you, you take a look at the, at the statistics, you take a look at the numbers. There's no way we're hearing about all everything that happens. It just, and so sometimes, and I, and I got involved with that movement too at one point because I was invited to read poems to the community in Newtown, Connecticut, Sandy Hook. I got to know some of those parents, uh, parents of the children who were killed uh, in, in one of those mass shootings. We're, you know, where's the movement? What do you attribute that to? That is the that ebb and flow. That at some level, people talk about the 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 media and the, and the power of, of it has in the mainstream media certainly in what is reported, what is covered, and what is not. What is what is important, what is not. What is of value and what is not. What do you attribute that disappearance to? Well, a lot of it has to do with awareness. A lot of it has to do with uh, what we know. And a lot of it has to do with the way that people uh, motivate themselves to get involved. You mentioned the media. Uh, I see less and less opposition every day in the mainstream media. Uh, I see, I need to see more of the kind of alternative media that WRT represents. And I'm not just buttering you up here. I need to see more kind of the sort of opposition that the progressive magazine represents. And I'm not just, uh, uh, you know, buttering them up either. You know, when, when we think about activism, we have to think about information. We have to think about not just information, but motivation. 
It's not an, we, knowing what's going on is necessary, but not sufficient. We, we also need to feel moved, hearts and minds, you know, um, and, and so that, that, that strikes me as, as essential, what you're doing, what, what others like you were doing. And, and the need for organization to bridge those periods of ebb, the ongoing political education that cannot be left to just spontaneity, but uh, must be organized. The absence of those institutions uh, on the ground is also crucial. It's, it's telling, I believe. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's a fundamental principle. Organize, organize, organize. Uh, and, you know, when you think about the fact that, for example, a, a very, very small percentage of the workforce in this country is actually organized. Uh, and, and that percentage shrinks every day. Uh, but people need to organize on all fronts. And yes, they need to organize politically. There is a striking degree of alienation and isolation in this country right now. Um, and we are always experiencing that, that sense of isolation and alienation, that sense of helplessness, the sense of estrangement from the political process, sense of estrangement from our own government. Um, and, you know, and our president, who I think has, has made an utter fool of himself um, in, in his recent visit to the Middle East, um, in, with respect to what's happening, the, the horrific events happening there. Um, you know, th this, is, this is the kind of situation where people feel uh, politically uh, helpless. There's, they feel so small, and yet we do, we have to do whatever is possible to to uh, to connect to each other. And it starts on the ground. It starts with people talking to each other, one to one. Um, you know, uh, you know. I quote that it, it, many politicians have used this expression, right? All politics are local. Tip O'Neill got credit for it, Boston politician. He wasn't the first to say it, but that's where it begins. We have a few minutes left. Uh, how do we how do we head toward a wrap here? Uh, some final words. Uh, what you just ran through was was quite something in my estimation. Uh, but how do we sum up? How do we? Are you continuing on with your writing? It's uh, it's a struggle sometimes. Um, I, I do have another book in the works, uh, approximately 40 poems in that manuscript. It will be published by, uh, Knopf, but not for quite a while. I still have work to do. Um, it is, it is, uh, slow going. Um, but there are many stories to tell. I will never run out of stories to tell. Uh, I am a narrative poet. But that means I'm a storyteller at heart. Here we have a, a in a sense, a founder, one of one of the originals uh, of that first generation of uh, artistas uh, that uh, gave his time, his, his sweat. Uh, uh, you know, one thing you wrote, I I had to flash back on. You talked about learning how to cut audio tape, 
and something a lost art and that we all you know would splice and cut and rush before the program began uh and so on uh it's all electronic now but you did that i did that uh so many folks uh, around getting out the news or the public affairs especially uh rushing in the last minute with the red pencil and uh editing the upi wire which is long gone um so I really uh, enjoyed and found moving parts of this uh, incredible hour. What else? We got two minutes, Martin. Give us an outro. <laughs> <laughs> well, and most people don't even know what the word outro means. Intro, outro. Intro, outro. Well, you know, in a sense, we're still cutting that tape. Uh, you know, uh, we're still splicing. Uh, we're still using a razor blade uh, because as much as we have advanced uh, technologically, uh, politically, and culturally, I think we have taken a step back, more than one step back. Um, and we need uh, to keep going, to keep fighting in order to gain back whatever it is we have lost. You know, it's not too late for us to to fight. You and I, Alan, are not going to see the fruits of our labor. And that's something we have to accept. We're not going to see the, the, the society that we wanted to build, but we can keep fighting. We keep doing something to move society in that direction. Uh, we can keep agitating. We can keep raising hell. That was my father's great admonition to me. Raise hell. Well, uh, Raise Hill, you do on occasion, Martina Spada. You've been listening to Martina Spada, the highly acclaimed, award-winning poet, voice of the voiceless, activist, and, and writer, and much, much, much more. Um, as I mentioned at the head of the program, he lived in Madison from 77 to 82, so you should check out his poem in this month's uh, Madison Magazine, and the intro, a bi biographical sketch of Martina Spada by Doug Moe. I've been your host for this hour. Um, my name is Alan Ruff. You want to thank Jade uh, for, for helping to produce. Jack is our engineer today. I uh, want to thank you, our listeners. And, of course, Martina Spada. I want to thank you. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. And I'll be talking with you next week. With information that will never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and support it Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded With information that will never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and support it WORT 89.9 FM, Madison Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and support it Live and direct, we come and never be recorded With information that will never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and support